Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. An Erio's Original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Deborah Blum. Deborah is a Pulitzer Prize-winning American science journalist, columnist, and author of six books, including The Poison Squad and The Poisoner's Handbook. Let's hear what she has to say about Mary Ann Cotton and her weapon of choice, arsenic. Hi, Deborah. We're so happy to have you back on the show to talk more about poison. Hi, Rebecca. I'm so excited to be here. Poison, as you know, is one of my favorite subjects. Well, and this episode was your idea. So thank you for the suggestion. Uh, we've learned about a very, uh, you know, tragic, terrible uh, poisoner. The amazing Marianne Cotton, right? <laughs> exactly. So could you start off by reminding us about the popularity of arsenic, aka inheritance powder? in the 1800s. Yes, it's such a fascinating story. So, and, and arsenic, I have to say personally, is my favorite poison. It was ruined by scientists, as I'll get to later, for the good homicidal poisoner. But it's really a wonderful homicidal poison. Uh, so uh, during the 19th century, uh, arsenic was hugely widely available, and partly because it's a very versatile, arsenic itself, sorry, you know, is an element. It's a metallic element. It's fairly common in the Earth's crust. It's about 
the 33rd most common element, but it's also an element that likes to bind with other things. So it grabs on to different other molecules and atoms to create different compounds, some of which are very poisonous. And one of them is arsenic trioxide, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's one molecule of arsenic and three of oxygen. And it turns out that that's just an amazingly good homicidal poison. And, and, and this was discovered really way before the 19th centuries. The Borgias loved arsenic. There were other mass poisoners who loved arsenic, trioxide. It, it's just a really good poison. So, and it's also a very useful, useful industrial chemical, right? I mean, even today, we have a kind of love-hate relationship with poisons. We'll go, this is super dangerous, and then we'll use it all over the place, right? And so arsenic <laughs> was kind of like that. So, you know, we have even today a love-hate relationship with different poisonous things. We, I mean, a good example from the 20th century would be something like lead. We know it's terrible. They knew it in Roman times that it was neurotoxic. And yet we put it in paint, we added it to gasoline, right? We left this sort of toxic residue over much of the United States. I mean, we just like, they're both dangerous and useful. And arsenic in the 19th century was like that. Uh, it was dangerous because it's a very effective acute poison. And it's a broad spectrum poison. It damages every cell in your body. Not every poison does that, but arsenic is broad spectrum. And so when it poisons you, it doesn't, it doesn't take a huge amount, you know, half a teaspoon or something to kill an adult, but it uh, can mimic the symptoms of a natural illness because a lot of infections, you know, kind of roll through your body. You get muscle aches, you get stomach aches, you get sore throats. They're kind of everywhere. And a lot of the arsenic related illnesses were kind of like that, right? So, it looked like, it could, so you could have this poison, you wouldn't have to use very much of it. It would mimic a natural illness. In the early 19th century, there were no tests at all for poisons in a body. So it wasn't like you were going to get caught. And here you also have a, a dangerous compound that is tasteless and odorless. So it doesn't warn the victim, right? And then it's super useful. So in this time period, there were no poison control laws at all in the early 20th century. Anyone could go down to the local pharmacy or the grocery store and pick up as much arsenic as they wanted, and they could get it in rat poisons. They could get it in... Um, Cosmetic preparations, you know, that beautiful, pale, ethereal Victorian complexion that we now think was largely women giving themselves chronic arsenic poisoning. There were solutions like Fowler's solution that women would take to make their skin more beautiful. You can find all these newspaper ads where people are saying, you know, lovely woman uses arsenic, right? And so... And then it's a great dye. Uh, arsenic makes a beautiful green and when you when you treat it properly. And so it was widely used. It was used to actually color candy green, right? It was used to put a gloss on chocolates, a kind of arsenic shellac, right? <laughs> it was used to uh, color wallpaper and fabric. I mean, some of the, there's a famous designer of the 19th century, William Morris, 
And some of his wallpapers are so poisonous that they have to be kept now in special vaults because he used these arsenic greens. They would be called Paris green or Shields green. And and just one more study uh, point about that. There was so much use of arsenic in wallpaper that occasionally if your wallpaper got damp, it would actually off-gas arsene gas. And so one of the big theories about Napoleon, who they discovered later had high levels of arsenic in his hair when they exhumed him, was that he was poisoned by the arsenic in his wallpaper, that he was in prison at Alba, lots of, you know, corrosive sea breezes and the, and the wallpaper actually off-gassed arsene gas. And that was one of the reasons that they found arsenic in his body. But, but the real point of that is arsenic is everywhere. And if I'm annoyed with you, as, as uh-huh. we often oh, are. Which I hope you're not. I really hope you're not. <laughs> I don't trust. Well, you might kick me off <laughs> later, right? <laughs> but if I was annoyed with you or, or you know, you've got a bunch of money that I want, you're not willing to give it to me. Uh, that which was why arsenic got the name, the inheritance powder. I've got this very handy near perfect poison. So arsenic became one of the most widely used poisons of the 19th century for murderous reasons. It was the number one homicidal poison. And the the 19th century is often referred to by historians as the arsenic century uh, because of its widespread use and because of its high profile role in killing people. So how would Marianne Cotton have administered her poison to her victims? You know, there's a number of different ideas about that. You know, clearly she occasionally would just put it in a cup of tea. Right. And and that was a great way to do a kind of repeat dose. Right. One of the tricky things not to now I will sound creepy. But one of the the tricky things when you're trying to poison someone is getting the dose right, right? And uh, most of us don't have medical knowledge of the perfect dose. And so, you know, a lot of times poisoners would kind of estimate and the first dose would make the person sick, but not necessarily kill them. And so you'd need a second dose. So one of the things that they know about Marianne Cotton is, you know, she would have And from everything we're able to gather, she was a sort of mid-19th century poisoner. She was born in 1832. And, of course, she has an unhappy ending uh, about in 1870. I want to say 1874. Um, So she, you know, lived about 40 years. But during that time period, they think she poisoned about 20-odd people and Uh, One of the things they know she would do is, you know, you would have some arsenic, you could put it in porridge, that was another way she would deliver it, right? You'd sit down to breakfast, you'd have some porridge, which is basically a version of oatmeal, right? Which will give you a sense again about how undetectable this poison is, right? When you have a poison, a much faster acting poison like strychnine or cyanide, they're bitter poisons, right? Um, arsenic is not. And so you could put it in oatmeal and people wouldn't taste it. And then the person would get sick, but darn it, just they wouldn't die. 
So you'd then be, honey, you don't feel well. I'm bringing you a nice pick-me-up cup of tea and you can put arsenic in that. And they know that she put arsenic in tea. And and one of the stories, you know, that people say, and this is ironic, is that before her in, that was what she was requesting was tea for comfort, right? (sighs) Wow. And what what were some of the side effects that uh, her victims had? One of the, I mean, I've thought about this. One of the diagnoses you see in the 19th century is something called a gastric fever. I actually started saying to myself, what in the world is a gastric fever, right? I think it's something probably similar to what we would call food poisoning today in part, right? It's Uh most likely... Um, you know, uh, gastrointestinal upset that comes with a fever or, you know, just severe gastrointestinal distress. And so people who get a, a, a acute dose of arsenic, a lethal dose of arsenic, very, very often get a very upset stomach and get very sick to their stomach, right? Um, and they can also get the other things that are kind of associated with an infection, a sore throat, because the poison will attack there, right? If, if, and it doesn't sound like she did this because she went through a lot of people fairly quickly, right? Um, but if you were doing a kind of slow methodical arsenic poisoning, then you would see other symptoms, right? Um, it um, affects the skin of your hands, right? You can get lesions on your hands. You can get a discoloration of the skin, you know, it, which can be even like little greenish yellowish patches on your skin and you get lesions. And an example of that from today Going back to the fact that arsenic is a naturally occurring element, it contaminates in its arsenic trioxide dangerous form a lot of groundwater around the world, right? And in the United States, there are are areas that people will talk about as arsenic belts where there's enough arsenic in the groundwater that people need to put on arsenic filters. There's uh, one that runs through part of Wisconsin, there's one that runs up here in the Northeast. It's, it's related to an ancient seabed. The EPA standard for arsenic in drinking water in the United States is 10 parts per billion. But in other countries where we, they don't have an EPA and they have groundwater contamination, there's been arsenic trioxide in groundwater at levels like a part per million, which is a thousand parts per billion. And wow. in Bangladesh, where they had a whole lot of problems with that in the last couple of decades, because uh, they were using tube wells that just drilled down to this arsenic-contaminated aquifer, um, you would see these classic arsenic lesions on the hands, right? Um, as people were, because you drink every day, so you're getting a cumulative dose, right? So we know that arsenic does all those things, Um But most people didn't get to the lesion stage, right? Not for Marianne. Seemed to kill them quicker than that. (laughs) And would they have mimicked uh, other things that people died of at the time? Yes, gastric fever. Some of that you see a crossover with that in typhoid, right? There's similar symptoms to typhoid. There was similar. There was a lot of gastroenteritis at that time, and actually a lot of, if you think about it, bacterial infections. For instance, um, you know, milk wasn't pasteurized. 
you had all you had bovine tuberculosis, you had undulant fever, you had brucellosis, a whole lot of infections related to drinking unpasteurized milk, right? People mm. picked up other infections like cholera, but typhoid is the one I've heard the most with arsenic that people would, uh, and that kind of gastric fever idea, the severe stomach upset, a fever. And, and in the case of Marianne Cotton's victims, if you go back and you look at some of the newspaper reports of the time, you'll see that a lot of times gastric fever was what they put on the death certificates, which tells you that these, I mean, these people had an upset stomach and, and muscle aches and sore throats and the symptom of a gastrointestinal infection, right? And no one, and for surprisingly long time, no one is suspecting that Marianne Cotton, who some people call, you know, Britain's first serial killer, no one is, is suspecting that she's just moving from body to body, so to speak. And you're seeing all of these, you know, kind of illnesses that look like natural illnesses, because there is a lot of that around. In the United States, just because of the bad quality of a lot of food that people had at the time, um, um, you know, medical historians here call the 19th century the century of the great American stomachache. And <laughs> so it was really hard to tell the century of the stomachache from the century of arsenic, right? They overlapped. So how did she finally get caught? Well, almost all poisoners get caught when they get um, overconfident and do something stupid, right? And they kill too many people, right? And so in her case, and I have, when you go back and you look at the stories about her and her history, and you see this sort of, you actually literally see this trail of death following her over this couple of decades, right? You see, well, maybe even not that long. Yeah, a couple of decades. You, but you see uh, husbands died. She was married four times. Three of her husbands died of gastric fever-like things. She had 12 children. At least um, 10 of them died of mysterious illnesses and gastric fevers. Her mother died, right? A friend of hers died. All of them of these very some, And yet, People just didn't pick up on it. And the way she got caught is she had gone through four husbands and she was angling for a fifth. <laughs> and he had apparently told her that um, the son, the nine-year-old son of her previous husband was an impediment to their marriage. He did not want to have a stepson. And so she went to a, a local I can't, the guy was some kind of local authority in this issue lived in a, a number of cities in um, northern England and she asked him if he could put her son in a workhouse right which was where you would put children who had no parents and there was no money and they would go into these horrible institutions for children and basically be slave underpaid slave labor kind of like you know the way Charles Dickens wrote about in Oliver Twist right and so this guy's like no I, I don't see why I would put him in a workhouse right he's a nine-year-old boy as a mom right there's no reason to do this and she said to him you know well you know he's really not very healthy anyway and I probably won't be bothered 
bother by them much longer. And, uh, and, you know, these cottons and literally her fourth husband was this guy. Um, what was it? Cotton, William Cotton, Robert Cotton. I'm blanking him. He's definitely, his last name was definitely Cotton. His last name Um, was Cotton, first name was Robert. So Robert was her fourth husband. And this little boy was named Charles and Charles Edward Cotton. And, um, he, she said, you know, none of these cottons last long. And, and her husband, Robert, had mysteriously died and his daughter had mysteriously died and his sister had mysteriously died. And the only one left standing was this little boy. And so and then the little boy died. And this guy was just so everything about it felt wrong to him. So he stopped the doctor from issuing a death certificate until they could do an actual autopsy and some analysis. And so she, meanwhile, because she would take out insurance policies on all the people she was going to kill, had insured the little boy and she went down to the insurance office and they said, we can't give you a payout because we don't have a death certificate. And once they looked closer at, at him, they found arsenic in his body. And then they actually backtracked and did some exhumations and found um, um, arsenic in her previous husband and a couple of other people. And all of that came together in this big explosion. And actually, one of the interesting things is you had these two kind of city officials who were saying, you know, don't do this, don't do this. But the other thing that happened was that the local newspapers got hold of it. And and really did a, t- a lot of tabloid stuff. And it was newspaper reporters, not government authorities, who went back through her whole life. And they started bringing up death after death after death over this period of several decades. And there was so much pressure then from public opinion that they were forced to go and actually look at this more seriously. It's a great example of the early press, right? Getting in there and saying, you know, don't touch this. This is <laughs> right. So Something's not right here. Have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is the Marsh test and was it used in this case? Right. So arsenic, because it was one of the most commonly used poisons of the time, was the first poison that chemists really tried to figure out how to find in a body. And the first test for arsenic was developed right, I want to say about 1830-1840, by a British chemist named James Marsh. And until James Marsh developed the Marsh test, there were no tests available for any poisons in the body. There was no real science of toxicology, right? There was no one knew how to find a, po- a poison in the body. And if they suspected poison, usually they would do is feed the suspected victim's last meal to a dog. And if the dog died, they say, oh, that must be poison, right? I mean, you really could get away with murder in, in, in all kinds of ways at this period in time. And so James Marsh was a British chemist. And he testified at a trial which involved a man murdering his uncle. And and because the science was so inadequate, the the jury found the um, killer not guilty. And apparently the story goes that the killer then just taunted James Marsh to his face. 
you know, you, you couldn't catch me, you, you know, you're so incompetent, I'm going to take my uncle's fortune now and have a really good time and you, you know, double jeopardy with murder, so I can't be tried again and, you know, screw you. And apparently the guy was completely obnoxious and Marsh was so angry that he went back into his laboratory and basically locked the doors and locked everyone out and huddled over his retorts and beepers and um, and eventually developed what came to be known as the Marsh test. And it was a very primitive test. And, and I, the way it worked is, let's just say that you did tick me off and I killed you with arsenic. And so... <laughs> which I wouldn't do, promise. But let's just I love let's, this let's do a hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, and it's back in the 1840s. So what the, you know, supervising doctor or coroner would do is they would take some of your tissue, probably your stomach's tissue, and you would mix it up in a big beaker and add a, some chemicals that were known to kind of precipitate arsenic out, right? Cause them to detach from the, to detach from the other material. And then you would heat it up and, and the material in that beaker would vaporize and you would put a tube on top of the beaker. The vapor would go through the tube and then you'd be standing there. I have this great picture of a couple of scientists. It's kind of like a cartoon during the March test. And they, you stand there waiting for the vapor to come out that tube and you hold a empty, very clean, empty test tube over the end of the tube. And as the vapor goes into the test tube and it cools, if there's arsenic in the vapor, it will solidify onto the inside of that test tube. The, the arsenic actually forms tiny black crystals and, it, and you get a black mirror on the inside of the test tube. It's called an arsenic mirror. In fact, a black mirror is an arsenic mirror. And so if you could run this test and you had these shining black crystals on your test tube, you knew that the content, that stomach contained arsenic. And that was the Marsh test. I mean, it was actually a super smart, really simple test. I mean, people did different, uh, you know, made it more and more sophisticated as it went forward. Um, but that was the beginning of forensic toxicology saying we can find a poison in a body and you didn't see, and, and just to dwell on that point one more minute, arsenic's a metallic poison, right? So after the Marsh test, a whole bunch of other tests for metallic poisons start arriving, antimony and lead and mercury and all the famous metallic poisons. They learn how to find them in a body, but they can't find plant poisons at all. And so you can kill with cyanide or strychnine or aconitine uh, or aconite, if you, you know, is the other word for that, uh, which is from the monkshood plant, and, or, or nicotine. And in fact, the first plant alkaloid that was found in a body was nicotine. And that was a case in the 1870s where a uh, French aristocrat uh, killed her brother because she wanted his money, she and her husband did, by uh, stewing up tobacco leaves on their estate and, and then serving him, you know, nicotine-rich drinks and they did kill him and again there there was a really crazy chemist he was from Belgium who again almost again locked himself up in his laboratory until he figured out how to catch uh, you figure find nicotine and so you see those two sort of milestones in the 19th century 
that are the beginning of, yes, we can catch a poisoner, but arsenic was the first. So we're almost running out of time, uh, but I, I have two big, important questions I want to ask you. Number one, why, if Marianne Cotton is such a prolific killer, is she not a household name like Jack the Ripper or other serial killers? That's such a good question. And, and I want to say that uh, we tend to really underestimate women killers. In fact, I was looking at an article in, uh, about women, female serial killers in psychology today recently, and the guy made the point that in 1989, there was an FBI profiler who literally said, well, there are no female serial killers, right? Just dismiss <laughs> them. And and we tend to society and as a society to underrate. I don't mean this to be a female empowerment story, or maybe I do, right? But we tend to underestimate women anyway. And, and people are dismissive about poison. All the great female serial killers, barring Arlene Lornos, who used a gun and, and and is considered a real outlier, but almost all of them are poisoners, right? Um, and, and you can find countless examples of this. And society is really dismissive of poison. Poison is a coward's weapon. Poison is a woman's weapon. You know, there's, it was actually a line in Game of Thrones, you know, men use steel and women use poison, right? Because real killers, right, whip out their dagger. And so I think we've tended to dismiss women as serial killers and dismiss women as poisoners. And it's really crazy because when you actually go back and you look at the history of women poisoners, uh, some of them have killed 40 people, 100 people, right? More than 100 people. And so I think we need to grow up about this. I, I mean, I think we need to give women their due. Uh, poisoners are rare. Women murderers are rare. But you put the right combination together, you get a Marianne Cotton who's obviously sociopathic, right? I mean, she's killing her own children when they're two years old, right? right? And you give her a perfect weapon, the woman's weapon, poison, and she's able to just go to town. So she should be a household word because she will remind you that the wrong woman in the right circumstances can be as dangerous as anyone in the world. So at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the murders caused by Marianne Cotton, who or what would that be? I mean, I think my concept is if you look at it, the 19th century speaking of being dismissive of women, was incredibly dismissive of women. Women, you know, were property. They couldn't even own property a lot of the time. They had no power. They were just objects owned by their husband, and, and they were considered less than. And so within that context, you have a Marianne Cotton, who, I mean, his bodies are falling by the wayside as she goes, but no one looks at her because she's just a woman right? She's just wow. a woman. She's just a nice little woman. You know, they did an evaluation of her at her school and they said, you know, she was very tidy, right? And her, and her clothes were always clean. And so 
I think the real concept there is the dismissive attitude toward women and, and the idea and the actual idea that women can be dangerous or have power. And so Marianne Cotton was just able to fly under the radar because no one took her seriously. She was just a woman. And and that is not me saying that, well, we need to be terrified of all women, you know, uh, coast to coast and everything. But it is me saying that we do need to recognize that even in situations where women are less than, women can still be dangerous. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for, you know, lending your expertise again on this uh, very interesting subject. I love your podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> you please quote me. And so I'm really honored to be, I love talking about this, but it is just such a pleasure to be back talking to you and being part of this great show. Well, the feeling is mutual. So thank you so much. Take care. Bye, Deborah. Bye. Take care. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello, everyone. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. What a joy it is to talk about uh, poison with Deborah. You know, it's just. It, it, <laughs> that sounds like a great podcast. <laughs> poison with Deborah. <laughs> I'm going to approach her about it because she needs it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you know, she's just passionate about arsenic. And, uh, you know, she manages to not come off as creepy, even though she's so passionate about such a, a dangerous poison. It makes me feel like I should also have a favorite poison. <laughs> like I haven't thought about it, right. you know? Yeah, what would be my I should give I'm it just, a think. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think. Is Elmer's glue a poison if you take enough of it? <laughs> I don't know. I think... I, Maybe in large quantities. 
I'm sure. Uh, you know, water. You can you can die from uh, having too much water. Too water much poisoning. Water. I don't know. I guess so it is po- called water poisoning. So because, Sun I mean, poisoning. Part of, part of what was so right. interesting about what Deborah was saying was that arsenic was such a versatile um, mm-hmm. element, mm-hmm. and that only yeah, it's like in so omnipresent. And and certain uh, when it formed with, I guess, two parts more of oxygen, what she said, mm-hmm. then it then it becomes a poison. But what like it's interesting thinking about anything i guess can be a poison well maybe not anything but like mm. certain elements right you can't get air poisoning right like too much air uh if air is too thin which is just not enough oxygen it's That's just not, not enough air, of, I guess. yeah yeah clayton were you're no you didn't i think my air is right a little thin <laughs> here where i'm recording oh, so that I'm would not be- really a hundred percent uh oh, we're losing him. Um, I think his. I think your husband is uh, thinning out the air in your. She's thinning my air. Wow, that's a great way to poison someone. Like I just can't breathe. <laughs> why are you wearing a gas mask? <laughs> why are Why aren't you uh, suggesting I wear a gas mask? Right. But you are. <laughs> but uh, something else that Deborah pointed out, which I thought was very, very interesting, was that uh, arsenic was extremely. Uh, prolific at the time it was or it was mm-hmm. not prolific is probably not the word but it was around and versatile and it was put in everything and lots of things and so i guess it wasn't very suspicious to find people just covered with arsenic after they died right it could could it could it could, because it could have been any number of things that they where they crossed came across arsenic i was making a note uh, in my note so she was telling us about the wallpaper and the famous right. wallpaper artist and i thought what a clever way you know if like a modern day mystery to off someone that annoys you to install some old wallpaper and like spill some water or set off like a sprinkler alarm in the middle of the night and be like, Oh, it's just such a tragic accident. And I don't know. I got this wallpaper on Etsy. (laughs) That sounds like a perfect, uh, comeback poison method for your husband. That's right. Right. If he tries to poison you. Taking my last breath. (laughs) I set off the fire alarm. Uh, War war of the roses over here. First, you have to put up the wallpaper. Right. It's true. As I'm gasping for air. Um, But yeah, a versatile poison. Mm. I mean, and scary that it was just used in uh, so many things at the time. And I know we've talked Mm -hmm. about this before, but it's like, what poison are we using that's we're going to later find out should not have been used in our, yeah. I don't know. Cosmetics, food, whatever, right. beverages. Yeah, plastic, phone, whatever, you name it. Well, um, it's all about doses. And I mean, uh, something from our childhood that they talk about a lot is lead. Right, which Deborah brought up. Another thing they talk yeah. about is asbestos, which is in everything. Yes. But, and it depends on, and you got to know how to handle that. And again, doses and proximity and mm-hmm. all that stuff comes into play. So... Um, hopefully we'll be okay now uh, she (laughs) hopefully it's not just just a general statement hopefully we'll be okay (laughs) i was just gonna say i hope it's not i hope they don't find out later that podcasts are poisonous poison of the brain we're all dead poison of the brain yeah (laughs) i think we've been slowly poisoning our listeners yes and there is it's entirely possible that that is happening, especially with me under the fact checking, <laughs> under the fact checking title, whatever. I mean, I don't. I think that's there's an argument to be made that you know the whole Alex Jones telling people that Sandy sure. Hook was a hoax and that it was like a th- plan and people believing that, like that to me is like poisoning the mind. Right. I, I could say oh, that, totally. Like like uh, Deborah said, the the right circumstances mm-hmm. with the white woman can make her like 
just as dangerous as any person. So it's oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. the right person with the right platform with the wrong information, dangerous. Danger zone. I want to do it. Everyone, sing along. Say it along with me. Two, three. Danger zone. Danger zone. Um, how about Deborah saying that society? You know, society's undermining mm-hmm. of women was to yeah. blame for all the murders. Under- I'm glad that we we did touch on this mm-hmm. in our conversation. And I was really, it's really uh, uh, great to hear her reinforce that idea that, that like the emotional toll that that takes on a person. Mm. Totally. It's like, you, you think I can't do this? Undermining and underestimating. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah. yeah. It- and how brilliant for her, Marianne Cotton. I mean, she was, as Deborah said, a sociopath, yeah. which we definitely talked about. But like how brilliant of her to to know that she's underestimated and just take advantage of that and be like, well, no one's going to suspect me so I can get away with this. Yeah. Horrifying. It's, Horrifying. Yeah, it's absolutely scary. Sick and twisted. Sick and twisted, but also uh, a, a reaction to... Totally. To, to the, the time and the era. You know, and what, what she was going through. You know what the other thing I was thinking about a lot uh, during when Deborah was speaking, especially in the sort of later parts, where was, you know, back then, when I say back then, I don't know. 1800s? <laughs> you know, as science is developing, right? Okay, dino- and, you mean dinosaur time or science? No, time? it's like the time of the murders or whatever. Okay. But mm-hmm. the, like, you think about cases today, it's a lot about forensics, DNA, you have heavy evidence, hard evidence, experts, etc. forensic experts. They didn't have that, right? And I just think, I wonder, and I'm not sure how true this is, but maybe we can ask another expert another time, or maybe Deborah could have some insight about this. But... I wonder how much being a lawyer or p- presenting a case had more more to do with storytelling than anything else, right? Mm. I mean, you know, she was referencing the fact that people just underestimated women. And like we talk about all the time on other episodes about, you know, uh, or rather uh, the whole case with, um, what's her name, who had that, who killed their Lizzie parents? Borden? With, Lizzie Borden. Yeah. It was more about like, what is expected of a person who kind of looks and sounds and acts the way she does. So Mm -hmm. with the absence of evidence, they're left with sort of stories, you know, and it just sort of, it's fascinating to me to sort of think about that and think about that in context of today. And also like, especially with the regard to this Rittenhouse thing that just happened where this kid got, uh, got acquitted of all these charges after, um, bringing a gun to a, right. to a, to protest. a protest. Um, and it, you know, you just like at a certain point in the past, it was like common sense. And now it's all sort of letter of the law and there's, you know, sort of more sort of stringent participation in law or something like, l- l- like back mm. then it just seemed more like, I don't know, st- storytelling. Well, and they now did, it's more they just like, didn't have the forensics. Right. Exactly. To back now it it's up, more so sort it of heavily forensics. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Just my just my sort of like half baked musings on the subject, but I don't know. I think mm. I thought it was interesting. Mm. Mm. I'm gonna go Well, I do feel pot. like uh speaking of someone like a written house, which I feel like his name's gonna be remembered for a specific reason, it was a uh it's seems like Marianne Cotton should be more well known too because you know, it's like as tragic and terrible as she was as a person, how interesting that she was kind of dismissed as a woman in her time and did all these murders and we still to this day don't really 
think of her. We, well, right. we right, idolize these famous male serial killers, so why not have her just as well-known? Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. a weird... It is weird. I, I also it, love this idea that like poison was like d- dismissed too like it was a lady's killing weapon so it like in a weird way poison was like a victim of misogyny you yes know? and to me that's i mean so wild and kind of funny because it's like you're dead right so like why do you care what do you care if it was a sword mm-hmm. or a poison like i'd rather get poisoned <laughs> i guess and die than like stabbed i don't know maybe but, i don't maybe no I, I mean i'd rather not die but i'm just saying it's like right. it's just as effective it's like you're yeah. dead regardless of what weapon was used mm. um but it's just like oh one one weapon you know it's a, a weak man's or or, or you know the weapon of choice it's like oh misogyny you know it's like, uh, why, mm-hmm. why, are, why do you have a say in that? Uh. <laughs> like, <laughs> so what? just to remind everyone, we did throw Marianne Cotton in jail during our conversation and right. we gave untreated mental health issues the big slap. Mm. Um, there was patriarchy on the board, which I feel like was what we, you know, was representative of this idea, right. you know, like a woman's dismissive role in society do you feel mm. comfortable keeping as is or is there anything you'd like to reassess i mean i i i my instinct is to kind of keep it as is but to shed a spot you know because i still think she did it obviously <laughs> i mean yeah, she definitely sure. did it um and you know, there there were other women at the time who were being held back and who right. and not and not poisoning, and not poisoning right? So mm-hmm. I think right. I think what you know what really is to blame is like this perfect storm of all those three things. Right. You know, you right. had a mental uh, untreated mental health issue mixed mm-hmm. in with a society that undermines women, mm-hmm. and you know the uh, ma- and. The person, Marianne Cotton, who, you know, had the access to the arsenic and had the, uh, uh, you know, whatever her motives were for for killing these people and uh, went ahead and actually did it. So I think it's a it's a triple whammy. Mm. I mean, I I just think that I think, yes, there's there's a lot to be learned from everything. Uh, what Deborah was saying, but at the end of the day, I think we made the right call. We, we got to get Marianne one thousand percent her own cell and her own <laughs> set, that monster. Keep her away from. I, I the rest don't want to share. Yeah. She can't. She can't work in the kitchen. No. In, in the alarmy jail. <laughs> no. Right. Right. She can't be trusted. She no. cannot be trusted. No. So okay. So I think let's keep it as is. We're shining a spotlight on, you know, on the times, and. Uh, you know, give Marianne Cotton her, you know, serial killer due. Put her, you know, yeah. She was give her the notoriety. It was she's a more she's. I a mean, monster. I don't know about notoriety is the is the right word, but let her be labeled, you know, for what it was. Fear, yeah. I, I think, like Deborah saying, fear her. Yeah, just fear like because Deborah, not Deborah, Marianne Cotton could be anyone. Right, right. So fear her. Yeah. Don't, fear don't her. underestimate. Don't underestimate. No. Nope. Well, thanks to everyone for joining in. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Um, it's really important that you help us by leaving your review. I can't stress this enough, you know, because 
it, it without these reviews, I don't know if we're going to be able to continue. We have to keep getting the word out. So they're really helpful and kind of one of the only ways, one of the most helpful ways you can help us continue make, uh, to make episodes. Um, and stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing the Andes flight disaster. Now, this is the disaster that sparked the story for the movie Alive. You're not going to want to miss. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 